I've gotten so efficient since I had kids. Mm-hmm. Like I can do stuff so fast. <laughs> if you want something, well, I almost said if you want something done, give it to a mom, but they have enough. Well, that's true. <laughs> but they do know how to get things done. Yeah. Oh man, shit gets done. <laughs> Welcome, listeners, to Dear Reader. This is a show about reading books and friendship. Uh, I am one half of your hosting team, Michael. Hello, I'm Emily. Yes, and if you've never joined us before, uh, we are two old friends who have known each other for like 18 years now. And reading has always been a big part of our friendship. But as we sort of got into this stage of adulthood, sometimes we find it a bit difficult to read. So once a month, we just get together and ask each other what's the most interesting thing that we've read. But before we do that, we do a little bit of catching up about our life. So, yeah, what's been uh, what's been on the go with you in the last month and a bit? Uh, sleep training, mostly. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> My kids are on different nap stages, which means at 10, I try to get Marty down. At noon, I try to get Eddie down. At three, I try to get Marty down. Why don't kids like to sleep? I don't know. It's so universal mm-hmm. and so weird. I always remember I had a... What, what, what's what's your cousin's kid to you? Like, what's that name? That's like a second cousin or something. Yeah, something like that. Um, <laughs> Let's just call him a cousin. I had a cousin who, when I was like 13 or 14 and he was two or three, he not only hated to sleep himself and would fight it so hard, mm. but if you fell asleep in his presence it was like it offended him and he had to wake you up <laughs> was... i know because we were trying that like we pretended oh everyone's going to sleep now mm-hmm. you know to to make it more of a thing yeah he yeah. was like no no wasn't having that <laughs> the desire to be part of the group and to do what mommy and daddy are doing is not strong enough to overcome the natural hatred of unconsciousness because like what he you know, I was thinking, it was like, well, we, you know, when he goes to bed, we watch TV and we have conversations and we have a lovely time. Of course he yeah. wants to be part of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's not it. He just does not He wants to be sleep. part of the glittering adult conversation. Have a cocktail. Talk about what he's been watching on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> so I have come back from a trip, which is one of the odder trips of my life um in that it was it was two parts uh, i went to las vegas because a very good friend of mine was competing in the npc nationals which is basically the national level amateur bodybuilding championships in the united states it's very high level very prestigious you have to win a contest at the regional level just to qualify super high pressure so it was myself and a couple of other friends and my friend who was competing, and we got a couple of adjoining hotel rooms, and we made a weekend of it. So it was kind of like friends in Las Vegas, but also kind of like supporting our friend who's doing this very stressful thing, physically and <laughs> mentally stressful. Yeah. So that was uh, interesting. And then I turned around, and I was home for seriously about 24 hours, and then I got on the road again and went to Cape Cod. Which okay. was, <laughs> yeah, I was seeing like a lot of Massachusetts posts. Yeah. And people are like, oh, how is Provincetown? And I just have to correct them by going Truro, um, <laughs> which is fine. Like, I actually preferred that. Truro is just the next town down from Provincetown. Provincetown is the sort of largest town on the Cape, and it's sort of a gay mecca. And 
I think when people heard that I was in Cape Cod, they assumed I was like, oh, you went to like party time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I went to be in a nice, quiet house way out on the seashore where it was so dark at night you could see the Milky Way and it was oh, quiet. Wow. And it was as far away from the Las Vegas Strip as you can imagine. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a bit of whiplash. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. But your, your talk about supporting your friend doing something incredibly Difficult. It made me think of something my good friend did this weekend, What's that? Um, which you may have heard of. It's the tickle swim. Oh, my God. I didn't know you had a friend who did that, but that that scares me just to think about. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, uh, the tickle swim is a five-kilometer swim in open ocean. Um to raise awareness and money for mental illness. I, I think it should be pointed out this open ocean is in Newfoundland. Yeah, this is not like nice Caribbean Sea or even like summer in Massachusetts yeah. Sea. This is <laughs> like I know the English Channel is more than five kilometers, but those waters are warmer. <laughs> they're not warm, but they're warmer. Yeah, <laughs> she wore a wetsuit and um, every swimmer has, I don't know what they call them. They have like a person in a kayak who like, yeah, yeah, like goes a, along a, with them. Someone on a boat following them so they can be saved. Yeah, and it's a really great event. A lot of people participating are doing so for very personal reasons. Mm -hmm. And it's a real act of endurance and triumph. And so congratulations to her. Fantastic. Indeed. And if you're looking to support mental illness in Newfoundland, it's a great way to do it. It's a a year from this weekend, I guess. (laughs) Right. So if you're a swimmer next August and you want a challenge, you can swim to Belle Island. Yeah, there's a great fish and chips place there, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I think they actually serve the swimmers food. I hope they do. <laughs> I hope so, too. So, Michael, tell me about space. Yes, I've been to space this month. <laughs> so um, people are probably aware that it was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon mission in July. And people might know that my full name is Michael Collins, and they might know that the third member of the Apollo 11 crew, the guy who stayed in the command module and orbited around the dark side of the moon while Neil and Buzz made their historic steps onto the surface, was also called Michael Collins. And maybe a small subset of those people know that Michael Collins, the astronaut's book about his life as an astronaut carrying the fire is generally held up as the gold standard for astronaut books it's like this is the best book by an astronaut about what it's like to go into space so when i was in dc in april and we were at the um the air and space museum at the smithsonian i picked up a copy or rather my husband picked up a copy and gave it to me as a present um so (laughs) this is a book by someone who has the same name as me about going to space (laughs) That's great. And um, it totally lives up to its reputation. It's really good. He was like an Air Force test pilot, and like he did the West Point thing and everything, and clearly he like has a lot of sort of STEM skills. Like you need to know a lot of math and whatnot to be an astronaut. But he absolutely clearly had a strong education in the humanities because he he just I don't want to say he's the soul of a poet, because that's a cliche, but he clearly is a broad-minded, clear-thinking kind of person. And he has this warmth and humility on the page, which is very appealing. It makes me think a little... He's very companionable. Um, Mm -hmm. It makes me think a little bit of Bill Bryson, who's just like a very pleasant person to spend time with when you're reading one of his books. Um, but it's like, what if Bill Bryson orbited around the dark side of the moon and experienced a solitude unlike any that other any other human has in history? 
Wow. Uh, so, yeah. Like, That's he, a question. Yeah, he was like a quarter of a million miles away from almost all humans and like the width of the moon away from two other humans. <laughs> That's fascinating. You never... You never think about the guy who didn't go on the moon. Mm-hmm. I knew there, I always knew there was three. Yep. Um, yeah. But it's an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah. He was kind of the, you know, he's the least famous. He's the one in kind of the background. He had the loneliest job. You know, this is not something that's fun to think about, but it was very much a question if the eagle would lift off from the moon and rejoin the command module in orbit like neil armstrong and buzz aldrin could have been stranded on the surface and just left there to die and mm-hmm. he would have had to come home alone which would have been really horrifying horrifying <laughs> so like it's this very high tense job and he just he clearly doesn't downplay the stress of it. A lot of the first astronauts were test pilots, and test pilots are sort of taught how to stay calm in extreme situations. Yeah. And yet it didn't sort of kill the emotion in him. I got the 40th anniversary edition, so there's a little preface that he added 40 years later. And when I was reading it, I decided I liked this guy on the second page. When I looked back at Earth from the moon, if I could use only one word to describe the tiny thing, it would have been fragile. A totally unexpected reaction, but fragile turns out, unfortunately, to be accurate in a thousand ways. World population in 1969 was more than 3 billion, is now more than 6, and will be 8 or so when the next lunar heroes and celebrities look back. I don't think this growth is healthy or sustainable, but our economic models are predicated on growth. They require it. Grow or die, or maybe both. The dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico is now larger than New Jersey and still growing. The growth of death, a terrible thing to do to this planet. This one example alone makes me want to cry, and countless other catastrophes abound, some lurking in the future, many already here. We need a new economic paradigm to produce prosperity without growth. I fervently hope some of you reading this can help reverse today's ominous trends. But as for me, I'm going fishing. Take care. Michael Collins, October 2008. (laughs) And I was like, I like this guy. (laughs) I decided right then. (laughs) So when did he write this? He wrote this not that long after. Um, Yeah, it first came out in 1974. So just five years after the moon mission. Right. Okay. So it's not like an old man reflecting. No. And he's still alive. He's in his 80s now. And uh, he basically narrated the Google Doodle that uh, was done for the 50th anniversary last month. And it's absolutely a lovely little animation that's worth watching. I'll link to it in the show notes. And he also wrote a little piece about Columbia, which is the command module that he stayed in while the other two went down on the moon, and his sort of emotional connection to that ship. It's quite short, but it's really, really well done, and it gives you a sense of what his style is like on the page. I don't know why, but like, I choke up when I read it. It makes me emotional. Um, Thinking about the Apollo missions and the drive to get to the moon, it affected me emotionally in these last few weeks in a way that it never has before. It's always been like, oh yeah, it's a really cool thing. Look how cool humans are. We can do amazing things when we set our minds to it. But like, it just seems so dramatic and grand and unlikely that it even happened. And like, in my sort of darker moments, I fear something like that will never happen again. 
like sending humans to the moon might be the peak of our species. It just seems like it was such an optimistic time. Mm -hmm. And we're not in an optimistic time right now. (laughs) And one of the things I like about Michael Collins and his view in this book is he really stresses that although only three humans went to the moon and only two of them like walked on it in that Apollo 11 mission, it was really like 300,000 people. He talks a lot about the little old ladies in the factory in the small town in Massachusetts who glued together their spacesuits. And it's like, if they didn't do a good job, we would be dead meat. So like, thank you very much, little old ladies who glued together the spacesuits. You did great. (laughs) Yeah. Are there any, like, how long has it been since there's been a major project undertaken by any country, really? Yeah. Like that, like for, and not, you know, building the world's tallest building or whatever, but it's something for science or exploration. I don't think there's been one in our lifetime. Would you, would you consider the International Space Station? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. But I don't really know the story of that, how that came to be. Me neither. And I don't know if it was such a grand thing as the original moon landing, just because, like you said, the moon landing was so out there and unlikely. Yeah. But anyway, I'm talking about something I don't really understand with the space station. But as he says in the preface, the little bit I read, we face these ominous challenges, some of which are coming at us, some of which are already happening to us. And like we need big, forward thinking, optimistic, utopian projects like tackling like climate change should be a a thing like the Apollo missions. Yeah, that's um, Alexandria. Ocasio-Cortez, the -hmm. congresswoman from New York, she drew a similar analogy to World War II. She says the nation needs to come together in an effort Mm -hmm. like that to face current crises. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think... I think Mike Collins would agree, both the one talking into the mic and the one who wrote this book. (laughs) So there's lots of great things in this book. It's a, it's pretty long. It's like about 480 pages, but it's, it's an easy and a pleasant read. Um, He just, it feels like you're talking to a wise older friend who doesn't hold the fact that he has had such unique and extraordinary experiences over you. He's just excited to sort of talk to you about them. And um, it's just lovely. Uh, There's a little section pretty early on where he gives a short biography of all of the um, NASA astronauts. I like, because there were, I don't know, 30 odd of them, I guess. Um, And it wasn't at all clear which ones were going to be going to the moon. Like they were basically all kind of competing for the honor this book does a great job as well. If you're interested in this sort of technical side of things, like you don't just build a rocket and shoot people to the moon, like all of the Gemini missions. I hesitate because I've learned today, NASA wants us to pronounce Gemini when talking about the spacecrafts that preceded the Apollo crafts as Gemini. Nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> Apparently that is how you would pronounce it in the Latin. So I'm just guessing they're being super nerds, but I, I can't bring myself to do it. They want to differentiate themselves from the astrology nerds. Sure. Something I like guess. that. <laughs> exactly. So the Gemini spacecraft, apologies to NASA. 
um, preceded the Apollo, and um, the same astronauts crewed both. So Michael Collins was also, I think, on Gemini 8, if memory serves. Oh, so he'd been to space before. Yeah, yeah, he'd been to space before. He'd done two spacewalks on that uh, mission. And so a lot of it is actually about preparing for the Gemini mission and about doing the Gemini mission. And I mean, it also sort of, how do you become an astronaut? It sort of takes takes his career right from learning to be a test pilot and all of these things. And he's just such a good writer that all of it is engaging and nice and, and good to read, even when he's sort of talking about... Um, his time in the air force and whatnot. And you're like, you don't feel like hurry up and get to the good stuff. Talk about the moon. It's like, no, no, this is, I want to hear this. And it very much is about how all of this was sort of gradual step-by-step progress, both his personal career and the progress to get to the moon. Like each Gemini mission had a purpose. It's like how, you know, how long can humans stay in space? Can they stay in space long enough uh, to do the Apollo mission without something bad happening to them? Can we, like, have a piece of a spacecraft break off and then bring them back together again? Like, let's test that. <laughs> like, so basically everything had to be basically gradually done bit by bit. And each of the Gemini missions and each of the Apollo missions leading up to Eleven, like, took it one step further. And so it's very interesting to sort of learn about how such an amazing feat was done because you don't just say you don't just up and go to the moon one day (laughs) right it's an interesting phenomenon i've noticed in myself Mm -hmm. there's so many things that are so well known you kind of assume you know about them Mm -hmm. like the moonland like i just started watching uh chernobyl the hbo miniseries and if you'd asked me i'd be like oh yeah i know about chernobyl but i don't actually know anything except that it was a major nuclear disaster (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's it, but it you have this thing in your head, and then it's when you do find out what's actually the story is. It's like, oh wow. So I was bringing this up earlier, and I think I forgot to complete the thread. So I'm going to complete it now. Um, he has a little two three sentence biography of each of the original astronauts, including himself, and so it's quite interesting. Here's how he describes himself: Mike Collins. Okay if you're looking for a handball game, but otherwise nothing special. Lazy, in this group of overachievers at least. Frequently ineffectual. Detached. Waits for happenings instead of causing them. Balances this with generally good judgment and a broader point of view than most. (laughs) I just found that so endearing. Yeah. Um, He talks at another juncture about how he constantly was afraid that the other astronauts would realize that he's actually not that great at math. (laughs) Like, he's excellent at verbal things. Like, he scored very, very highly in all of the verbal-type things when they were doing the testing. But he was a mediocre mathematician. (laughs) I actually saw a really fascinating infographic one time. Mm -hmm. And it was a pie chart of the degrees of all astronauts. Yeah. And it was all a bunch of teeny tiny slivers because there's no one dominant degree. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, like, for the first undergrad degree. I mean, often a lot of them go on to do math and science or engineering. But there were lots of history majors and philosophy majors, literature majors, all the religious studies. Mm-hmm. It's NASA seems to be pretty comprehensive, which is great because a lot of the sciences, it, it seems to constantly pit science against humanities, which yeah. is bonkers because yeah. you need both. 
And a lot of the problems we have with like Silicon Valley startups and everything right now are basically STEM people who do not have a humanities education and don't value what the point of a humanities education is, like going ahead and shaping the future without talking to people who have made a life out of thinking about human society and how it adapts and relates to things. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like, I do not spend a lot of time doing math and science, but I am happy that there are people who do. Absolutely. And I would hope that those people are happy are doing the sort of things we do. Yep. Um, well, Michael Collins definitely sees the value in poetry as well as math. <laughs> so. It makes me so happy that he like this guy has my name and that he's actually so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's kind of one of my heroes now, which is kind of odd, I guess, because yeah. we have the same name. But, so, what, your, what are your feelings about Michael Collins, the revolutionary? <laughs> um, I don't know anything about him. <laughs> more mixed. I, I have, I, you know, I have. I When I lived in Ireland, I got a few free drinks because of that. Mm-hmm. Um People seemed to be surprised that I had such a name. I often felt like I was in America and I had announced my name was Abraham Lincoln. Um, but, you know, I, I would need to look more into that because he he killed some people. Yeah. <laughs> so that's always a big hurdle. So no murders for the astronauts. <laughs> well, actually... Um, it's not, it's, no, it's not a murder. But um, one of the Apollo missions, um, are, are you familiar with um, the first NASA astronauts who died? No. Um, well, actually, I think some of them might have been killed like in other ways, like their plane crashed or whatever. But the first ones who died on like a NASA craft, um, they burned in a fire on the launch pad. And it wasn't even... Um, like it, they weren't doing a liftoff. It wasn't like a Challenger type thing where it exploded as it was taking off. This was just like a test. But they used to have pure oxygen environments inside the cabins. And the cabins also used to be sealed in a very elaborate and time-consuming way. And so they had sealed the three astronauts in. And it was a pure oxygen environment, which is very flammable. And it just went up. And he describes they were in a meeting when this happened and the phone rang and the guy leading the meeting took the call. And it was horrifying, obviously, that these three friends and colleagues had just burned to death in this most awful way conceivable. And um, Michael Collins ended up having to break the news to one of the wives. So he writes about that. And it's like, he does like, it's, it's very, very moving. Um, and obviously rough like and it's sort of you realize up to this point they've just been sort of having fun like they understand the dangers and like they're out in space and yes you could die but nobody has and then just to die when you're safe on the ground in a spacecraft that is not going to be leaving the launch pad it just sort of brings it all home the seriousness of this you know kind of like you know, the early part of the First World War movies, mm-hmm. all the boys are off for adventure. Right, exactly like that. It is very much like that, yeah. No, this is a this is a great book. It deserves its reputation. If anyone wants to read a book by an astronaut about how you become an astronaut and what it's like to go into space and what it's like to be the loneliest person in the world, or not even in the world, the loneliest person outside of the world... <laughs> Like, he might have been the only 
sentient thing outside of Earth. Yeah. And of course, point. when he's on the dark side of the moon, he doesn't even have radio contact with Earth. Like he would go through these 40 or 50 minute periods on each orbit where he was just completely cut off, not even any way to communicate. He obviously got all of the, you know, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, all three of them became celebrities when they came back from the moon and they met the Pope and they went around the world and all of these things that you would expect to happen. And they got all kinds of letters from all kinds of people, famous and not famous. But he says that the most impressive letter that he received was from Charles Lindbergh, written on Pan American Flight 841 from Honolulu to Manila and postmarked in Manila on July 28th. Dear Colonel Collins, my congratulations to you on your fascinating, extraordinary, and beautifully executed mission, and my sincere thanks for the part you took in issuing the invitation that permitted me to watch your Apollo 11 launching from the location assigned to astronauts. There would have been constant distractions for me in the area with the VIPs, among whom I refused to class myself. What a terrible designation. <laughs> I managed to intercept on television the critical portion of your mission during this orbit of my own around the world. Of course, after you began orbiting the moon, television attention was concentrated on the actual landing and walkout. I watched every minute of the walkout, and certainly it was of an indescribable interest, but it seems to me you had an experience of, in some ways, greater profundity, the hours you spent orbiting the moon alone, and with more time for contemplation. What a fantastic experience it must have been, alone looking down on another celestial body, like a god of space. There is a quality of aloneness that those who have not experienced it cannot know. To be alone, and then to return to one's fellow men once more. You have experienced an aloneness unknown to man before. I believe you will find that it lets you think and sense with greater clarity. Sometime in the future, I would like to listen to your own conclusions in this respect. As for me, in some ways I felt closer to you in orbit than to your fellow astronauts I watched walking on the surface of the moon. We are about to start the descent from Manila, and I must end this letter. My admiration and my best wishes, Charles A. Lindbergh. And of course, that would make sense, because he's the dude who flew across the Atlantic alone for, you know, the first time. It's so, that's the other part that makes it so extraordinary, is that flight was so new. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a generation before mm -hmm. that flying across the Atlantic was a crazy feat. The person who orbited around the dark side of the moon could get a letter from the guy who flew across the Atlantic solo for the first time. There's a, like the time between those two things is so short that a letter can be sent from person B to person A. <laughs> like human beings went hundreds of thousands of years without flying at all. And all of a sudden, like as soon as we get up, we're going to the moon <laughs> within the same century. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It's so good. I mean, it makes me feel good about human potential and what our species can do when we work together. And on the whole, I feel richer for having read the book. So that's great. So what have you read this month? I read City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert. Okay. This is a new release. Um, it's, well, do you know who Elizabeth Gilbert is? I don't. Okay. Um, well, Elizabeth Gilbert, um, she went to, I think, an Ivy League school. She came out of the pen, you know, writing for, like, GQ and, like, Esquire, real publications from a pretty young age. Mm -hmm. Her first novel, couple novels were 
shortlisted for some prestigious awards. I don't know if she won any major awards with these two, but anyway, she was, you know, uh, right around the up and up. Yeah. And then she wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and two, well, first of all, everyone knows Eat, Pray, Love is one of like the biggest publishing successes outside of Harry Potter of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, massive book sales, movie, kind of like a weird quasi health wellness movement that I'm a little suspicious of. Um, but anyway, she wrote that and, you know, became enormously famous and all this other stuff. Was Eat, Pray, Love fiction? No, it was a memoir. Okay. Gotcha. And she had the advance before she even went on the trip. Okay. Well, the idea was handy. her um, marriage fell apart due to her decision not to have children. Mm. Um, so her, she was like, I'm going to go to countries and find myself. And her publishers, like I said, she was already fairly established. Yeah. We're like, okay, we'll pay for that experience. And, well, that's nice for you if you can yeah. arrange that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice life work if you can get it. Pay me to go eat everything in <laughs> India and be really selfish for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll write about that. Yeah, um, I've actually not read or seen that. But a weird thing kind of happened to her literary career after mm-hmm. that, which is she stopped being talked about as a serious writer. Right. She like she wrote um, the books since. I haven't read them all. The first one I read was Signature of All Things. Ah! Oh, sh- which is about a fictional lady scientist in the 1800s mm-hmm. who is, through her studying of mosses, coming to similar uh, conclusions as Darwin. Okay. Um, Darwin hasn't, he's like happening, the reader knows he's happening at the same time, but she doesn't, obviously. And uh, also goes on this international quest for plant life and to suck a penis. <laughs> <laughs> Like, is that on the agenda, or did it just happen along the way? It's something she really wants to do. Okay, I understand. A lot of us want that. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's like, not an attractive woman. She's mm-hmm. independently wealthy, and she's, like, mad about science. So she's not going to get married, and she does not have the apparatus in her social world mm-hmm. to have sexual relationships. Right. I read this, and it was one of the best books I've read in the last ten years. Wow. It's fabulous. And I was like, why isn't this getting more? Like, I was seeing it talked about on, like, girl websites, mm-hmm. but not on, like, my more prestigious book websites I go to. Right. Because, oh, she wrote Eat, Pray, Love, so that's yeah. it. <laughs> She's been ghettoized because of Eat, Pray, Love. Exactly. And this new one, City of Girls, which just came out, same sort of thing. It's, um, I'm all the reviews are like, from People Magazine, and they're like, oh, what a fun summer romp. And it is, but it's still a very good book. Mm-hmm. This one uh, tar- starts us off in 1940 in Hell's Kitchen in New York. So <clears throat> Vivian is a very privileged young woman. She's just been kicked out of Vassar for basically never going to class or doing any work. She mm-hmm. goes to Vassar because that's what is next after finishing school. And uh, she goes to New York to live with her uh, bohemian aunt and her theater company. Her bohemian, in this case, kind of means lesbian. And uh, theater company means, like, chorus girls in a very working-class Depression-era, well, 
Just at the end of the Depression, yeah. uh, Hell's Kitchen in New York. Yeah, so it's not glamorous Broadway, okay? No, no. I mean, mm-hmm. she. there's definitely a glamour to it. The girls mm-hmm. are beautiful. They're wearing feathers and sequins, but they're cheap feathers and sequins. And right. It's just not as, as fancy. And she becomes friends with one of these girls, and they, they just they go out every night. They go drinking. They go dancing. They have sex with all kinds of different men. And then they stumble home in the early morning hours to sleep all day. They're able to illustrate the difference in privilege through these girls because Vivian is almost always is able to escape any serious consequences. She's not raped. She's not assaulted. She's not beaten. She is slut shamed pretty badly at one point. She hurts someone. She has that kind of a consequence. Mm. Her friend does not escape the same. Her friend is, you know. Nobody from nowhere kind of person. Right. And when they both get into serious trouble, Vivian is sent home to her parents, and the chorus girl is cut loose to go God knows where. Right. And God knows whatever happens to her sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. The book then, you know, it's funny because all the descriptions of the book make it sound like it's entirely placed in the 40s, but or the, the early 40s, but it then goes through the war. Right. And into the 60s. It's wonderful. It's it's a, like as a minor spoiler because when she's sent home to her parents, the idea is she's gonna she's gonna find a nice husband, mm-hmm. and you know, end up with you know finish off this wild chapter of her life. But with the war on, she comes back to New York to work, but she keeps and she doesn't like go out every night anymore. But she's still very committed to the idea. Is like I'm going to have sex if I want to, mm-hmm. and not get married, and I'm going to work and I'm going to live independently. And that's going to be my life. And that, of course, is very pretty extraordinary for the time. Like when the war ends, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't have to go back to her parents because she's got money of her own. She gets her own place. She goes into business with a friend and she she lives her life. Yeah. And it's it's a wonderful life. And I actually heard an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert on another podcast I listened to. And she said in researching this book for. She spoke to a lot of these chorus girls from the mm-hmm. 40s and uh, who are in, you know, their 90s now. And she said none of them who live this sort of life, who like decide to eschew marriage and just be sexually adventurous, none of them regretted it. Yeah. In fact, she mentioned one woman she spoke to who was 96. And this woman said, my family still says you're going to regret not getting married someday. And she says, <laughs> I haven't yet. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I say this as a woman who's married with children, so it's not like, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's this book is like a celebration of that freedom and saying this freedom has always not always been readily available, but it's always been there. You yeah. know, like you could always, if you were strong enough and you were brave enough, you could yeah. seize this for yourself. Yeah. And if you had the resources. I'm just thinking exactly. about her friend who, when she got in trouble, that was it for her. Like, Yeah, and it's... It is interesting the way she just vanishes from the book. Because mm-hmm. clearly, because I kept expecting this, like, oh, we'll, we'll run into her and her life will be ruined or it'll be fabulous or yeah. she'll be. And, but there's, there's like a little hint towards the very end of what might have happened. Mm-hmm. But you don't know. Like, she's literally gone. Yeah. Gone from the world. I mean, you know what? That's, I think, I haven't read the book, obviously, but I think that might be the what I would most like there because it would feel like uh, if it was resolved in either direction, it would be sort of making some kind of point 
where if it's like you, they, they meet cross paths in the 60s and she's had a ruined life and she's bitter and she's been on the streets and yeah. that would be like that would seem like moralizing um, immoralizing and if it came out the other way around it's like oh my life is fabulous <laughs> then it would be like perhaps feel a little bit unrealistic and like <laughs> like uh, whereas if it's just left a blank, I mean, that's the way life tends to go. Like people fall out of your life and you never learn what happened to them. Yeah. Well, before Facebook, <laughs> well, and that's not to go off on a tangent, but that's mm-hmm. something that like fascinates me is that I'm not going to like lose track of people entirely anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless they change their names multiple times on Facebook and you're like, who is this? I know. I hate it when people do that. I do have a friend from way back that mm-hmm. is not on any social media and like we weren't super close you know we mm-hmm. drifted apart and uh i was speaking to a mutual friend and he asked me about this guy and i was like i don't know and i was like do you know and he was like i don't know and I'm like what do we do like do we call his mom like because <laughs> i know where his mom lives but you know it's like i don't want to necessarily be in touch with him i just like how are you doing yeah what yeah. are you doing I mean, in the pre-internet days, this is what things like class reunions and whatnot were good for. Yeah, and now I can suddenly see the appeal of them, just because I'm curious. The the other thing that it put me in mind of was, and I, I don't know a lot of film history, but I, I've heard about the Hayes Code and how in like the 50s and whatnot, I think in the 40s, it came in at some point. Um, anyways, it made me think of the Hayes Code and how depictions of what they consider to be immoral behavior, which a woman freely enjoying her sexuality would certainly be that, were only allowed in movies if the character was punished for them, which yeah. is why we always get the slut whose life is ruined, never the sexually liberated woman who has a good time and has no regrets. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is like, it's not that she has zero regrets. Like Mm -hmm. her actions have consequences. Yeah. But it's a sort of like, she loses a couple of good friends and, you know, it's like she hurts people she cares about kind of consequences because she's careless with other people's feelings. Mm -hmm. It's not like, it's not that she's having sex. It's who she's having sex with. (laughs) (laughs) It's a, it's a rejection of that idea. It's like, yeah, you're going to have consequences for the choices you make, mm-hmm. but they don't have to be life-ending, you know, reputation-ruining. Well, her reputation's ruined, but she doesn't care. Yeah, and you she know, has she's the like, resources to continue on. Exactly. You know, now, again, a lot of that is because she started from a point of privilege, and she, because of the war, she was able to work yeah. and make money and get a business started in the 50s it's it's a really interesting structure of the book too because it's phrased as a letter mm-hmm. the the opening question um this it's being written from like roughly now and she's writing to him and she says you asked me what i was to your father um which is of course is pretty big start and of course you assume she's going to be like some lover or fair with the mom that's not quite it um, but the next 400 pages answer that question. And it's, first of all, the, the story is so interesting and engrossing. I kind of forgot that was the point for most of it. <laughs> and then when the father comes in, it's, it's in such an interesting way. And it, because it, it gets into a discussion of different kinds of love and relationships. Okay. Because 
as I said, it's been a huge celebration of se- female sexuality. But then it delves into a platonic sort of love. Mm-hmm. It, there's a romance to it, but it's entirely non-sexual. And that's interesting, too. You know, So it's also a celebration of the other side. Like, you don't need... You can have all the sex, and that's great. Or you do- can't. Or don't. Mm-hmm. And that's great. Yeah. Well... We have different needs, physical and emotional, and they don't need to be fulfilled in the same way from the same sources. Exactly. Like this woman has this very, like Vivian has this very important relationship with this man with whom she has no physical contact. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a war thing. You know, he, he can't be touched after the war. Gotcha. Um, <clears throat> and, but she also has fulfilling sexual relationships at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need to make a life. Also, she... Like, she doesn't ever have children of her own, but her close friend and business partner has a child who Vivian loves and takes takes a parental role. Mm-hmm. And and that it's, it's about these, you know, you can fill all these emotional needs without going the traditional path. Yeah. So it seems like it's taking an era which we are accustomed to as thinking as very limited and traditional and suggesting even during that time, there are non-traditional um, ways of structuring family or emotion or sex or all these things. Exactly. <laughs> like whatever you need to make up a whole life. And and I've read a lot of books that, you know, follow a character from 18 to 80 or similar. Mm-hmm. And But this one feels almost more complete yeah. than those. Like I feel like, okay, she I know her whole life. Mm-hmm. And it was rich and it was full And she, you know, she got what she needed. It makes me think um, when you were describing, particularly the section of the book when she's kicked out of Vassar and she's in Hell's Kitchen with her dancer friend. It made me think of how this is such a typical shape of a narrative about young men. Mm hmm. Yeah. Excellent point. Like these are both just in terms of our society, but also in terms of literature and film and so forth the kind of experiences we expect a free spirited privileged young man who is cut loose in the world to have you're exactly right i I can't believe i didn't pick up on (laughs) this is like brightheads brightheads revisited yes exactly exactly (laughs) five times and i didn't think of it but yeah and even the even he's excited too yeah even the slight hint of uh homosexuality in the friendship well, more than a slight hint in some cases, but you know what I mean. Yes, I do. But anyway, I got to say, this is a fabulous book. Mm-hmm. And while it's definitely a book, I think, especially aimed at women, it's a great book. Yeah. And it's fun, but that doesn't mean it's not serious and important as well. Yeah. So we were speaking a little bit earlier about how the success of Eat, Pray, Love has kind of been, I'm sh- I mean, I'm sure the royalty checks helps soften the blow yeah i'm sure she's fine (laughs) but like uh it has been sort of a a detriment to her career which is very strange that like one of the most popular books of our the last couple of decades should hold you back it it is this weird dichotomy um about how it's like not just women writers but seems like more popular women writers Mm -hmm. have a much harder time Um, i mean this goes back to something caitlin moran wrote about we talked about in one of her books before which is that anything that is beloved by girls gets denigrated yes 
And like, I also read a, my first ever Jennifer Weiner. Jennifer Weiner. <laughs> anyway, she's a behemoth in the chiclet genre. She wrote like in her shoes and books like that. Mm-hmm. And I read uh, my first book by her, which is her most recent, called Mrs. Everything. It's also set back in the fifties and sixties, mostly. And that's about a uh, a teenage lesbian who decides trying to be a lesbian is just too hard mm. and decides to get married. And her sister, who goes hard into the hippie drug scene in the 60s. And like I said, th- this is, <clears throat> I don't think she's ever won a, you know, serious literary award or been even critically reviewed. But this was a fabulous book. Mm-hmm. It was deep and brilliant and you know, very human and understanding. And I was like, shit, why did nobody tell me about Jennifer Weiner? I'm like, but then I also was like, okay, she's also been on the New York Times bestseller list basically my entire life. So there you go. (laughs) Somebody told me I just wasn't listening. It's at the crossroads between if it's popular, it can't be that good. And things that are for women are not worth of serious attention. So last time we forgot to do a proper sign off. Like we just sort of like we're like bye, and I was like, ah, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> so we should we should like thank the listeners and everything. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed catching up with me and Emily and hearing about the things that have excited us this month in our reading. Yeah, and if you've enjoyed the show, you can check out uh, more at megaphonic.fm/dearreader. There's a Patreon where you can support this show and others in the Megaphonic stable. It's patreon.com slash megaphonic. And there's a store with merchandise, which you can find on the website, because I don't remember the URL right now. (laughs) But you're clever people. You'll figure it out. Very good. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.